Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. William Glob. He is Senior Program Officer at the Institute for Humane Studies, an educational nonprofit aff uh, affiliated with George Mason University. And he is the author of Why It's Okay to Make Bad Choices. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Dr. Glaude, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me on. So, okay, uh, I, I like to start at least sometimes my interviews with basic questions. So, since we're talking about bad choices here, how does one determine that something is a bad choice? Yeah, so uh, very roughly, uh, I would consider sort of what I'm talking about in terms of bad choices uh, would involve things that are allegedly, uh, they're alleged to predictably bring uh, overall harm to a person or short of that uh, choices that at least provide no compensating benefit, even if there's a low risk of harm. So for uh, an example of the first type of bad choice, uh, smoking is widely regarded to bring greater health hazards for almost all people uh, than whatever uh, pleasures it brings. And some defenders of paternalism regard the fact that there are new smokers as evidence of those people making very bad choices, uh, given all we know about uh, smoking's health risks. Uh, an example of something that might be low risk, but uh, has no compensating benefit would be like not wearing a seatbelt, uh, even if the harm from a, an auto accident is unlikely. Um, but these matters are complicated because what actually turns out to be bad for some may not be bad overall for others. Uh, so take smoking again. Uh, it's not obvious that sustained choices to smoke are bad uh, for significant numbers of people. It's contextual and it may depend largely not just on their health risks, but even more so on their preferences uh, and their life circumstances. So choices that may actually be bad for some are only quote, seemingly quote bad for others. Uh, although uh, defenders of paternalism often conflate actually bad choices with seemingly bad ones. And I explore these issues um, in greater depth in uh, chapter two of the book. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, do you adopt any kind of ethical framework here? Like, for example, when you're when one is evaluating if something is a bad choice, do you adopt sort of a consequentialist? ethics here? I mean, is it a bad choice depending on the, on the consequences it has, or is something more deontological and it is a bad choice in principle? I'd say. That, that's a good question. I don't really take a particular uh, ethical stance here. I would say that some bad choices are bad insofar as they predictably bring undesirable outcomes. Um, we can know beforehand that certain harms are likely to occur uh, from the choices, uh, even if they won't necessarily occur. But uh, a lot of it does come down to consequences, right? It, it does depend, like some choices that are usually bad could fortuitously bring good outcomes. Uh, there could be lucky situations uh, where a normally bad choice leads to a very desirable outcome. So for instance, um, I become a heroin junkie and uh, write a lucrative prize-winning book about my experiences. But I think in most cases, uh, those, you know, that, that the decision to become a junkie is not going to lead to, uh, to good outcomes. But yeah, I think it's largely driven by consequences. Um, as far as whether certain things are like intrinsically bad, um, I'm, I'm focusing more on sort of prudential matters and not so much on making like moral judgments about the choices. So um, whether a choice is like intrinsically wrong 
um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, there's cases like that. Like I think torturing puppies is probably intrinsically wrong, but I don't really uh, go, uh, go down that path uh, for the, uh, you know, in, in exploring the, what the book's talking about. In the book, you talk about three different types of harms that derive from these bad choices people make, severe, immediate, and irreversible. I mean, why do you distinguish between those and why is it important when people are thinking about if they are, I mean, if they should make bad choices or not? Yeah, so um, the reason I sort of parse harms into those uh, three features is that I think that uh, in lots of cases, uh, you know, the, the kinds of bad choices that are maybe the interesting cases involve at least two of those three elements, severity, immediacy, and irreversibility. Uh, mm -hmm. And I argue that paternalists tend to focus on harms that have at least two of those three features. Um, those are uh, at least the most likely candidate harms uh, that are worth talking about. So, you know, something that only has like one feature, like the relatively minor harm of a bad haircut, maybe immediate, like you go to the barber, you get a bad haircut, uh, oh, that sucks, uh, but it's not severe or irreversible, right? A bad haircut won't likely take years off your life and your hair will grow back. Uh, by contrast, um, organ, donor, uh, organ damage uh, from smoking, uh, while that's not immediate, it is severe and irreversible in many cases. And I think that's sort of the kind of harm that uh, is more, uh, I think, rightfully the, the focus of attention here. Yeah, I get it. So you've already mentioned paternalism and in the book you distinguish between coercive paternalism and libertarian paternalism. What's the distinction there? Sure. So uh, coercive paternalism uh, tends to employ interference or the threat of interference uh, with largely uh, self-regarding actions that are deemed sufficiently bad uh, for the chooser as to be considered impermissible. Uh, so this can range from straight out physical interference with a consumer, uh, prohibitions on the use or sale of certain items, um, and it can also be uh, maybe not as um, um, flat-footed. It could be in interventions that raise the cost of certain options so as to make them less desirable. So for instance, like heavily taxing cigarettes. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going back to cigarettes and smoking as sort of my, uh, my key examples here. Um, by contrast, libertarian paternalism, uh, it purports not to limit options, but instead to shape uh, choice environments uh, in light of humans bounded uh, rationality, right? So nudges uh, are the, the most familiar type of libertarian paternalism. Uh, nudges aim to employ certain biases and heuristics in human psychology and paternalistic nudges aim to do so in ways that benefit the person who is nudged. Uh, so a common example uh, is the framing of food in the cafeteria. People tend to reach for what is close by, what's at eye level. So placing healthier foods in that arrangement tends to influence people to make healthier selections, even if they're not consciously deciding such. Um, so people are still free to reach for unhealthier selections, but maybe they're placed a bit farther out, uh, further out of reach or away from eye level. And uh, people also tend to take less food if they have smaller dishes. Uh, so there is some evidence that these minor alterations in the choice environment or the choice architecture can have significant effects on the choices that people make when they're nudged in these ways. But their freedom to choose is not restricted, hence the libertarian qualifier to libertarian paternalism. Mm -hmm. We will come back to that bit about freedom 
in a second. But before that, are you then in favor of paternalism, at least to a certain extent? Um, so um, for the most part, no. So I, I guess one way I could, I could maybe frame this is to sort of give like a non-caricatured picture of paternalism. I think there are some really good arguments out there that are, are worth pursuing, which is partly what motivated me to, well, first back in the day, write my dissertation, but also write this book. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes paternalism is caricatured as like being big brother or a puritanical nanny state that's looking to treat us like children or take away anything fun for our own good. Uh, but I think the best defenses of paternalism stress how it can have like a democratic rather than autocratic structure. So that is, we, we are all equally bound by certain restrictions on our self-regarding freedoms, and that includes paternalists themselves. So uh, Sarah Connolly, a prominent defender of paternalism, uh, a philosopher, uh, she doesn't get to do whatever she wants while telling us what to do. Uh, Connolly herself would also be subject to the very paternalism she defends. Uh, and I think the best defenses also tend to stress that its role should be infrequent, uh, aimed at the most significant anticipated harms, and using the least restrictive available means. So uh, I think the best defenders of paternalism don't claim that they are the enlightened ones who know the capital G good uh, better than others. Rather, they're claiming to help others realize their own self-defined good in better ways, uh, sometimes by preventing them from making or being able to make choices uh, that are bad uh, precisely because they get in the way of effective goal pursuit. However, in the book, I argue uh, even that more uh, uh, subtle defense of paternalism is still mistaken. Okay. So for the kinds of questions you explore in the book, does it matter if people really do have free will or not? That's a great question. Um, it might make hard paternalism, as I use the term uh, in, in the sense that uh, Joel Feinberg pointed, it may make hard paternalism an empty set. Um, if it turns out that none of our choices are sufficiently free in the relevant sense, uh, and that everything we do is necessitated by prior states of affairs, uh, mm -hmm. then many allegedly free but bad choices are indeed not controlled by the chooser themselves. Uh, and this could give more leverage to uh, soft paternalism because uh, then a lot more choices than we had suspected are out of our control. And insofar as they maybe also are deviations from our core values uh, and our core preferences, uh, not only are they out of our control, uh, they're not even ours in any meaningful sense. Uh, and I explore some of this issue in, in chapter five of the book. Um, but my assumption for the most part is that we have free will in some like commonsensical sort of everyday uh, way. You know, I, we have willpower. Uh, I can reach for the last sip of latte uh, or pour it down the drain. Um, I can raise my hand and lower it. Uh, and these are meaningful ways, I think, that we can control our everyday actions. Um, so unless I'm given good reason to doubt that it's me in control of those everyday actions, uh, I'll continue to presume that I'm the chooser here. Now, granted, philosophers like to tie themselves in knots on abstruse metaphysical questions about free will. Uh, they've been doing it for centuries. Uh, there's no sign of them stopping. And I'll just put this out here, see what I did there. Maybe they have no choice. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to certain bad choices we circumstantially make in our modern industrialized societies, like, for example, eating fast food, that is something that, I mean, for most 
of our evolutionary history we didn't even have access to so is not really a necessity i mean it was created yeah. by capitalism basically so do you think that if uh, with that in mind if for example governments or whatever decide to ban fast food that that would be a bad example of paternalism or not I think it would be I think it would be awful, uh, honestly. And uh, yeah, and evolutionarily, we love glucose, right? We love sugar, we love calories. And yeah, definitely, you know, a lot of our cultural constructions uh, don't necessarily map onto like our, our genetic and evolutionary heritage. Uh, so I, no doubt there are many choices, good and bad, that wouldn't be available, but for being created by, you know, our culture and our social interactions, um, market capitalist or otherwise. Um, I mean, as far as doing well without certain human-made stuff, um, I think that comes down to individuals' preferences. Um, some people can't stand fast food, uh, while others have it all the time and grow obese, uh, which could very well be bad for them overall. And in the middle are those who have, have it sometimes when they crave it or when it's convenient while they're traveling, et cetera. But I wouldn't want to make a blanket judgment about inventions like fast food or fashion or nicotine products because whether someone is getting utility from them overall is contextual. Uh, it's judged on a person-by-person -person basis. And, you know, I'm concerned that sometimes judgments about, you know, what, what we can do well without uh, are motivated by a sort of scorn for the, you know, the so-called masses, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. But for instance, the truck driver who gets his daily breakfast from McDonald's uh, because that's the only place open early on his route uh, and he also likes coffee with egg McMuffins. I, I think he's making a perfectly good choice uh, given his values and circumstances. So I think that, you know, just having like blanket prohibitions of things that many people uh, reveal that they have preferences for uh, would be uh, not a very good idea. Mm -hmm. So would you classify your approach here? I'm not sure if I should ask from a political perspective, but do you think of yourself as a libertarian or not? Uh, so I happen to be a classical, I call myself a classical liberal, uh, and I think my approach uh, has largely, uh, at least in the book, the argument here has largely libertarian results along that margin, in that I conclude that people should be free to act however they choose, provided they don't violate others' uh, legitimate moral claims. So something roughly like Mill's harm principle is, I think, is what I arrive at. Uh, okay. But I don't think uh, I start with libertarian premises, at least I hope I don't. Uh, because I think that would be question begging and just not very good uh, philosophy uh, generally. Uh, but I'll leave that judgment to the reader. Um, I, don't for, I, I don't start with anything like full self-ownership, uh, which could get you anti-paternalism pretty quickly and easily. Uh, if we you know, own ourselves, we can do whatever we want. We can treat ourselves like property. Um, but I do start with a presumption in favor of individual liberty. Um, and this presumption is a starting point, I think, for a great number of liberals uh, broadly construed, not just classical liberals and libertarians. And then from that, uh, I, I contend that my arguments show that uh, none of the best paternalistic arguments justify coercion. Um, uh, the, the, none, none of those paternalistic arguments uh, are able to override the presumption in favor of individual liberty uh, in all cases uh, for everyone. Uh, so uh, actually, I think my, you know, I regard my general approach as being kind of Rawlsian. Um, it's a version of public reason liberalism that's um, heavily influenced by one of my mentors, uh, the late Jerry Gauss. Mm -hmm. So it would be contractualist in a sense. 
Yeah, I, I, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily attach a, a particular uh, ism to it because I don't know if I provide anything that's as um, sophisticated enough to to warrant a, a, a big label like that. Okay, fair enough. But yeah. <laughs> uh, from a philosophy of life perspective, do you think that it is essential for people to make bad choices? I mean, do you think that making bad choices, either you learn or not from them, is something that people, I mean, should have in life? That if people is, uh, only made good choices, they would be losing something? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is kind of a mistake to uh, to avoid uh, bad choices. Um, I mean, if I ever do a second edition of the book, I'd like to explore that issue uh, more. Um, I think people would be making a mistake in uh, in trying to avoid all bad choices because that's trying to avoid being human under conditions of uncertainty, which is where we all find ourselves. Uh, we're limited, we're fallible, uh, and sometimes we have to make judgment calls where there is no clear right answer. Uh, and I think we can learn from those situations and become uh, more resilient and insightful people uh, and examples to others. Uh, people can learn from us uh, uh, for better or worse. And Mill talks a lot about these issues and on liberty, so I don't think I'm, I'm treading any really new ground there. But I'm quite intrigued by some of the entrepreneurship, uh, the recent entrepreneurship literature that stresses the value of failure, the value of failure. Um, so if a failed venture was a bad choice in the sense that, well, it failed, um, learning how and why it failed and finding new opportunities in light of that wisdom uh, seemed to involve some very good choices. And our first dream is not likely to be our best dream, right? The one that best fits our talents, interests, uh, and situation in life. So as a teenager, I wanted to be a professional astronomer. Uh, then I saw how much calculus was involved and got frightened. Uh, but around that time, I also saw that philosophy interested me more. So had I pursued astronomy and succeeded at all the math, I might today be begging for research grants that aren't forthcoming or doing work that doesn't interest me as much. Um, so I think being open to failure or being open to sort of, you know, paths that turn out to maybe not be the, you know, the road's best to travel. I think that's of the same coin as being open to new unanticipated opportunities. Uh, and in that way, we can all be entrepreneurial through experimenting with choices that are bad in the sense that we have to figure out they weren't the right ones for us um, after all. So, yeah. Yeah, that's also why at the beginning I asked you how we determine that something is a bad choice. Because, I mean, yeah. many, many times in our lives, at least to me, this has happened several times. At a certain point, it appears that I made a bad choice, but it leads down a course that at the end of it, it leads to something good that I wouldn't have had in life if I didn't make that choice back then. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's like if you, if you pursue your first dream, that's probably likely not the, the way it's going to make your life go the best. It's those failures that actually, uh, you know, maybe are kind of ways of, of boosting you to a higher threshold, uh, but you, you can't really predict them. And so sometimes you just kind of have to make them and, and learn from it as you go. Yeah. So what does it mean for someone to have their best interests in mind? Yeah, uh, so that's that's a good question. I, I won't try to go too far uh, into the into the weeds here, but there's roughly three main philosophical views of what constitutes interests. Um, that would be hedonism, uh, 
preference satisfaction and objective list theories. Um, and I won't go into these in much detail uh, other, just, other than to say that a lot of the views converge on certain interests that almost everyone is alleged to seek regardless of what their goals or conceptions of the good life uh, might be. So uh, think of these as like all purpose goods or, or what Rawls called primary goods. So things like health, uh, sufficient material resources, love, happiness, uh, spirituality, not necessarily theistic, but the, you know, spirituality in a general sense, uh, and the social bases of uh, self-respect. So I think those are typically the kinds of interests that are in mind. Uh, and when we talk about bad choices, we talk about people who might be deviating from those or risking deviation from, from pursuit of those kinds of goods that are you know, more or less generally or almost universally uh, sought or, 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 or let me put it this way, they're claimed that these are what we should be seeking uh, regardless of what our individual uh, tastes and preference might be. Mm -hmm. Can we say that bad choices are irrational? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I would, uh, so I go into this some in chapter two of the book, but I, I would like to address the claim that are made by uh, some authors that mm -hmm. uh, some of our choices are bad insofar as they depart from economic rationality or, or homo economicus, the, um, the, the utility maximizer with complete information and perfect yeah. willpower uh, that never deviates from the axioms of rational choice. So they always have transitive preferences, uh, et cetera. Um, lots of behavioral psychology and behavioral economics. Uh, there's, there's evidence in these fields that, that, that we real life humans uh, often do not make choices in this way. Um, uh, but these fields uh, often take no normative position on that matter. Uh, and in fact, the original formulators of rational choice theory took no normative position either. Uh, the axioms were methodological. They weren't meant as prescriptions on how to decide matters in real life. Uh, so the question, why not be economically irrational, uh, I think is a perfectly coherent um, The normative claims often uh, come in from some of the behavioral law and economics literature. Um, that hold that uh, you know, although we depart from neoclassical rationality in certain ways, we ought to be more like homo economicus. And where possible, um, institutions should be designed that can better steer us closer to this picture of rationality. And from there arises potential defenses of both libertarian and coercive paternalism. Um, so some would regard choices that depart from economic rationality as bad. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think that in many cases they're quote bad. And, and I, again, I discussed this uh, in, in some depth in uh, chapter two of the book. Mm -hmm. So when we make a bad choice, it can have a bad consequence for us, for other people or for both. And I mean, many choices, like for example, the ones that have very bad long-term effects like smoking, for example, unless we live alone, other people will probably be affected by them as well. So to what extent do you think we should take into account the effects that our bad choices might have on other people? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I addressed this uh, to some degree in uh, chapter six. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, I think, situations where, um, you know, my self-harmful choices may also place significant, uh, say, financial uh, costs on others without their consent. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So uh, in chapter six of the book, I uh, consider a situation in which we are morally and legally obligated to care for those who come to great harm, even though uh, they, are at, they are at fault and blameworthy for harming themselves. Um, this, is the, this is a case where the, the costs of self-regarding harms become socialized uh, and others are not insulated from those costs. Uh, so now we have to pay for the care of someone who became paraplegic after riding his motorcycle without a helmet, or we have to pay for someone who has become indigent in old age because they didn't save enough for retirement. Um, so something seems unfair about us having to pay for others' bad choices. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I try to explore some ideas of where we can go with that in, in chapter six. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, perhaps there's two different sets of questions here. Perhaps one of them is to what extent when making a bad choice, we should care about the effects it might have immediate or delayed on people that are close to us. And then, mm -hmm. I mean, how should society deal with people who make bad choices, whose choices have a negative impact on society overall? Yeah, and one of the, assuming that we do have these perhaps even legally enforceable obligations uh, to uh, care for each other. Um, again, I explore some of this in chapter six. One of the ideas I explore is a mandatory uh, social insurance uh, social insurance scheme. Mm -hmm. um, so I sketch an idea. Uh, the gist of it is that perhaps requiring payment into a risk pool uh, for one's riskier activities uh, can prevent us from having to prohibit certain of those risky activities in the name of preventing uh, these otherwise undue uh, social costs. Um, if, if we are, again, if we are legally obligated to help those who culpably bring great harm to themselves and can't afford to deal with it afterwards. Um, I don't know if mandatory social insurance is a good idea, uh, but I think it's worth considering uh, if one is concerned about uh, prohibiting freedoms or inequitably prohibiting freedoms. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So another question, how can we be sure that a particular person is the best judge of their own decisions? I mean, that the person, that the person is uh, sufficiently, uh, I didn't want to use the word rational, but let's go with it here. Uh, but sure. he's, he's in possession of enough mental faculties to make an informed decision, even if she knows that it's a bad one and we shouldn't interfere with whatever decision the person makes. Sure, so I don't wanna commit myself to the very strong and controversial premise that people always know what's best for themselves uh, mm -hmm. better than any outside party in all cases. Uh, I think that's getting drunk on Descartes. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, am, I am though sympathetic to the weaker though still controversial uh, premise that we usually can't know when it is the case that an outsider might know a person's own preferences or beliefs or values better than the person themselves. Uh, so it's kind of a, a version of the who knows the knowers question. And given that uncertainty, I think the tie goes to the agent themselves and their self-reports about their preferences. Uh, but you know, that can be complicated since people sometimes engage in cheap talk or their actions may speak louder than their stated preferences. Uh, so I, again, I dive into some of these issues in, uh, in chapter two. Uh, but as far as questions about you know, whether we can know a, a particular choice is sufficiently free, uh, I'm not sure we can ever know for sure. Uh, 
Uh, I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table there. Um, I don't really have a more satisfying response for now. Um, I think consciousness is sui generis uh, and still quite a mystery despite all the, the work that's been done on trying to pin down what the heck it is. So I don't know if we'll ever develop something like an MRI technique for scanning our conscious brains and being able to say that was a free choice uh, and that one over there wasn't. Um, in the end, it may come down to phenomenology, to our, you know, our intersubjective experience and whether our reasons for action can be intelligible to each other from uh, within that point of view. And I think our current sort of workaday practices are fairly fixed points. So unless we find strong reasons to call them into question, that's kind of you know, my starting point uh, is just really this common day, com common everyday sort of experience of our lives and our freedoms. Mm -hmm. But I mean, here we're talking mostly about functional adults, right? Because yes. if we are talking about children or very old people who've already lost some of their mental faculties or even people or even adults who are not functional, I mean, those are different cases, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. I, I you know, I'm sort of starting with like the median, just, you know, functional adult, uh, young children, uh, you know, people with dementia, people with like, you know, severe, uh, just, you know, maybe disorders that, you know, get in the way of their abilities to function, at least in our culture, uh, um, you know, I, I, I kind of put them to the side. That, that, that's a challenge, I think, for any of you, including my own. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of just, you know, try to start with, um, you know, people who are just sort of everyday uh, functioning adults. Mm -hmm. But are there cases, apart from crimes, let's say, where you think that we should interfere with the decision of the person, even if she is a functional adult? Um, I, I think very rarely. I think very rarely. Um, it, as long as they are not uh, violating other people's legitimate moral claims and they are sufficiently in control, or at least in our best judgment, sufficiently in control of their actions, uh, we should leave them uh, to be free to do that. Um, and this, this goes for even like extreme cases, such as suicide. So I, you know, I maybe pause on that for for a, a bit because that's like the uh, maybe the limiting case of like a you know potentially a really bad uh, self harming uh, choice. Um, but even so, even in the case of suicide, uh, there could be many different intelligible reasons um, one might commit suicide. So it could be terminal illness, could be as a political statement, it could be uh, in response to fairly hopeless political situations, uh, major setbacks in one's life, uh, and, and et cetera. Um, the limiting, the even more limiting case here, I think would be whimsical suicide, where someone is not suffering you know, any known disorders, uh, yet decides to kill themselves for apparently no good reason at all. But even then there could be a tacit you know, existential choice at play, like where they're, mm -hmm. like, they're going, am I free to do even this? And we on the outside may not be able to read this off of their actions, uh, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be motivated uh, by, uh, you know, motivated thusly. Um, since we don't know what they're doing, maybe, you know, should we err on the side of caution and stop them until we have a better idea of what they're up to? Uh, perhaps. Uh, but in that case, that would still be a, a soft paternalistic uh, justification owing to our lack of sufficient evidence uh, that they're acting freely or voluntarily. Uh, it wouldn't be a hard paternalistic justification. Uh, and so I think the soft paternalistic um, justification would be easier uh, to, to um, I, I think, be acceptable to, uh, to everyone in our relevant public that we're talking about here. Um, now, 
all, all, of, all of this discussion I've been having, I, I imagine this question might come up. Uh, what about those who have children? What about those who have dependents? That's a great question. I, I leave that to the side in the book. I don't really even explore that kind of territory because you know somebody who just um, you know has people who depend on them, but then takes their own life, you know, because they're you know maybe I don't know, their their motivations at least uh, would need to be weighed against whatever obligations uh, uh, that they have towards uh, those who might who might depend on them. Uh, but I I don't really go into that whole issue either. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing, and it's interesting that you yeah. brought up the example of suicide because I can imagine that even people just through philosophy and in a rational way could arrive at the conclusion that they should kill themselves just out of some existential view like for example none of these make sense and if it is yeah. so then i don't want to live anymore or something like that yeah. it's not it's not exactly that they are living a bad life yeah. or that they yeah. are suffering emotionally or something like that it's just that yeah. for them it doesn't make sense so I think a lot of 20th century existentialist philosophy uh, kind of grappled with that very issue. Yeah. Yeah. Camus, Sartre. <laughs> yeah. That was like, the, like, this is where philosophy begins. Should, what, should I kill myself or not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the question posed by Camus in, in the myth of Sisyphus, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how should we deal with people that because of their personality traits, like, for example, someone who is very agreeable and uh, scores high on neuroticism as well, for example, and they prefer to not make decisions themselves and rather delegate them to other people. So how should we deal with those kinds of people? What, what, what to do about George Costanza, uh, if I must make a Seinfeld uh, reference here. Um. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think we should let them. If they prefer to delegate their decisions to others, we should let them. I mean, we don't want to be uh, ironically anti-paternalistic paternalists, forcing someone to make their own choices. Um, uh, so that is the reasons I have against paternalism for the sake of, of a person's well-being, I think also apply to paternalism for the sake of personal autonomy. And there are some autonomy-based defenses of paternalism. It's like people, we, we should be interfering with people's bad choices insofar as that may help them to become more autonomous. But I think if someone wants to delegate their decisions to a, like a reliable guru, um, that itself may be a bad choice in many cases. Perhaps the person uh, isn't giving themselves enough credit uh, to take more personal responsibility for their lives. Uh, maybe they're being overly deferential. Um, but even if so, uh, that's their prerogative. Uh, their bad choice is to be overly cautious about avoiding bad choices. So it's kind of a meta level bad choice, uh, but I think one that they should still be free to make. Okay, very well. So one last question then, is it okay then for people to make bad choices, generally speaking? I think so, I think so. Um, can always qualify it again, if, you know, if they're violating some kind of obligation or betraying some kind of trust, then that complicates matters. My focus has mainly been on harms that are largely focused on the, the chooser themselves. And I think in that case, yeah, they should be uh, largely uh, allowed to do so. Okay, very well. So the book is again, why it's okay to make bad choices. Just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? 
Oh, yeah. So uh, the book is available on Amazon and through the Rutledge uh, website as well. Um, I didn't I haven't checked prices recently, but the hardback price is almost getting pretty close to the paperback price. So uh, if, if you'd like to have a nice hardcover version, uh, it's not much more uh, than the paperback currently. Okay, very well. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Glob, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Taffini, Akian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.